The following program is intended for mature audiences. The time is now for the hardest hit. Yet completely trivial. Football show on the planet. You are in rarefied territory. Ladies and gentlemen, well, well to the broken helmet. Let's rock. And coming to you live on tape just hours away from the start of the 2022 NFL season. Rich Eggie hailing from parts unknown. Trying to figure out the most important question of the past 24 hours. And that is how the fuck did Nicole Byer ever become famous? I mean, ever. Seriously. Seriously. Uh, first I saw this girl was when my wife and kids started watching this Netflix show called Nailed It. Nailed It. Stupid ass show where they take non-cooks and have them try to make high-end cakes and shit. And they stumble and crash throughout the kitchen. Which is always good for a good laugh, right? Cooking humor. Just as good as sports humor. Right up there. And, you know, as they fail before the camera, Nicole Byer is there to add even more comedy. With her endless amount of zingers left and right just cracking jokes as all these people fumble through their fucking kitchen. So as I'm forced to continually be exposed to the show, I look at my family and I'm saying to them, you enjoy this shit? Because if you do, you can get the fuck out of my house right now. Because there's no way I'm married to you or I spawned the other two of you if this is getting chuckles out of all three of you. It's impossible. But then the madness doesn't end because all of a sudden, Wipeout, the TV show, moves from TBS, well, moves to TBS from ABC and cast John Cena to host it with, oh, wait for it, Nicole Byer. Like, what the fuck? Now, even though Wipeout is the JV version of NXC, for those of you that remember that show, the John Cena casting had me intrigued, right? But seeing this disaster pop up on the ad killed any hope I had of the show being good. And sure enough, as I tuned into it to give it a fair chance, because I'll do everything once, well, not everything, you know what I mean, Bayer did everything in her non-talent-having ass, and a big one of that, to ruin the show. And then there's today. So I sit Sunday afternoon, relaxing, Wake Forest, could get into the tournament, could not, We'll watch the show. I don't think it's happening. They lost to BC. Vatek ended up winning the ACC. I think they're on the ropes. But I'm going to watch the NCAA tournament selection show. So I sit down. I watch the tournament selection show. BC, I mean, Wake Forest doesn't get in. The BC lost the Vatek title, like I said, ensure that they did not get in. Wife says, oh, it's dinner time. All right, go upstairs, make a little dinner, sit down my wife. My wife turns on the TV so they can watch something as we uh, munch on some good treats. And it's the Critics' Choice Award. Wow, okay, live Choice Award. You know, we're getting into Oscar season. So, yeah, why not? Turn it on. Let's see Let's see what's going on. I, you know, King Richard, I see, is up there. And everybody's talking about Tick, Tick, Boom and uh, the Power of the Dog or something on the dog. All right, let's see what we got this year. And so we sit down, start eating, Critics' Choice Awards come on. And I have my sanity tested yet again as Nicole Byer pops up as the host of the show. And she was with somebody else, and I forget who it was. But it was Nicole Byer again. I mean, now, I don't give a shit what form of comedy you enjoy. 
You could be a family comedy guy. You could like that puppet dude. Self-deprecation, profanity-laced, whatever floats your boat. Nobody is telling me this Nicole Byer has an ounce of community talent in her body. You can't do it. And this just shows you how our reality has completely jumped the content shark, if you will. Because when Nicole Byer is getting gigs at this clip, there are too many content providers. There's just too much. There's too much content. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that very prominent comics who were unbelievably skilled at their profession couldn't sniff content deals. They couldn't get them. It was every comic's dream, and they rarely were able to pull it off, right? And only a couple back in the day made that leap. You know, you had, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy make the leap. Richard Pryor had to grind it out to make the leap. Dangerfield barely made the leap uh, before, you know, his time passed. But, I mean, it was impossible. You know, and you want to go to the new age. You know, I mean, Louis C.K., I know he's been canceled, right? But whatever. But, like, Louis ended up doing Lucky Louis on HBO. That show wasn't great, but he got a fair crack on FX and did uh, Louis, right? I think it was just Louis. I forgot what the hell it was now. But I, I remember Lucky Louis, and I think his FX show was Louis. But, you know, I, I mean, it was a huge, colossal hit. Dave Chappelle, another one, that he got his uh, Comedy Central show, The Chappelle Show. And, I mean, it was a big deal for comics to work, grind it out, and get shows, movies, get content deals. And now, now, in 2022, Nicole Pyre is everywhere. Screaming or singing some nonsensical shit in my face. Like, go away. Go the fuck away. Go away. Anyway, uh, anyway, where the hell was I? Um, Misery? No, Sunday. Sunday. I, it was Sunday. I did watch a selection show, Critics' Choice Awards, and started putting together the show. Uh, today's focus was going to be the State of the Union, which I actually wanted to release the day actual after the actual State of the Union, but never got my shit together, and then I said, you know what, hell, we'll just do it before the New Year starts. We'll do it that Monday. Great idea. And we'll take a quick look back at the regime changes, the QB changes, broadcast changes, and then other legal items uh, of note that were still open. And then I, that's what I did. I finished it. Watched selection show, ate some dinner, got frustrated with what was on my TV, but I finished the podcast prep. At least I thought I did until that wax statue of a man named Tom Brady decided he was coming back. Like, fuck me, right? Like, the whole show probably should be about him coming back to the NFL. But it's too late. It's too late. I'm pot committed. We'll just have to ad-lib on the fly. So let her rip the 2022 State of the Union. First down. First down. And with first down of the 2022 State of the Union, we will take a look at organizational changes made in the NFL. And these changes usually come from teams that are just shitbox, right? Because the good teams just try to bring it back or make revisions to their already established team, roster, coaching staff, etc. But 
the bad teams are the ones that usually see the overhaul changes. This year, we've had a couple that are actually okay that have done pretty significant changes to the coaching staff. And so I was about to start with the Raiders, and then I hit the brakes because... The one and only Russell Wilson was traded from the Seahawks to the Broncos. And so when you throw Russell Wilson along with a new coaching staff over in Denver, I think that that's probably the most significant of the organizational changes. So Fangio is out. He gets booted. In the end, he was 19-30 and with the Broncos. I don't know if it was necessarily his fault. I don't think he was a great coach. But again, when you don't have a quarterback, it just becomes a real big mountain to climb, uh, regardless of whether or not you're a good coach or not. I I mean, look, the NFL is, and this has been said everywhere on the planet for decades upon decades, but it's a quarterback league, right? So no quarterback, and you're going to struggle. Unfortunately, Fangio did not. Nathaniel Hackett gets brought in. And he obviously comes from the Packers. There was a lot of talk about possibly Aaron Rodgers going to the Packers. So he, Hackett that is, uh, just spent the past three seasons as the Packers offensive coordinator. So he gets his first bid. Obviously, the Rodgers play didn't work out. However, they get Russell Wilson in there. So now you've got a Packers offensive coordinator for the past three years in there now taking the reins as the head coach. You have a new coach, a new quarterback in Russell Wilson, along with pieces that are in play. You have wide receivers. You have established rookie running back. uh, You have some defensive talent there. This is a roster that people were very fond of Sans the quarterback. I don't know if I am. I do have some questions about how good that top-tier talent is. Right? Javante Williams, the running back, good. Cortland Sutton, good. Uh, Tim Patrick, good. Jerry Judy, good. Put it all together with Russell Wilson, is it great? I don't necessarily know. His course, regular season records really has not done much since the two Super Bowl trips that they made, the one with the win versus the Broncos and the second with the loss. That's the way that it's going to ride that out, the way that he sees fit. And Wilson gets to head over to the Broncos and see if he can go with this young offense and this defense that they've been building and turn it into something behind, you know, using Nathaniel Hackett and his offensive prowess to try to... They never let Russ cook. Now this is the opportunity. Along with Nathaniel Hackett, they brought in offense coordinator Justin Outen. Uh, Outen came from the Packers as well. He was the tight end defensive side of the ball. They brought in Jaro Evero. He is the defensive coordinator. He comes from the Rams. He was their secondary coach and passing game coordinator. So there is the big monster change in Denver that we will look going forward. As for Hackett, not only did he coach the Packers as the offensive coordinator uh, and been with Green Bay from 2019 to 2021. Before that, he was with the Jags from 2015 to 2018. And then I think before that, he was with the Bills for one year, I think, as an offensive coordinator. So Hackett has been around. He gets his crack at it. Russell Wilson will be his man under center. And that is the first team to look at. Now let's go over to the Raiders because, like I said, originally before the Aaron, uh, the sorry, the Russell Wilson trade, the 
Raiders were really the team that I thought was intriguing because, look, they went to the playoffs. They easily could have won that game versus the Bengals. Are they a great team? No, but I think they're a pretty good team. They do have a manageable quarterback with Carr. I don't know, you know, necessarily if he's the guy, but he has performed well enough that he had a pretty solid year this year. And he's had history that was manageable enough that, you know, everybody got on him for being checked down. He, you know, does check down a bunch. But he wins. And so now they're going to bring in Josh McDaniel, and they're going to turn Vegas into the Patriots West. So you had at one point the Patriots South down in Miami. That obviously came to a screeching halt. And now you're going to have the Patriots West, which is probably more Patriots in nature, seeing how they brought everybody over from New England. I mean... Let's just start going down the list here. Josh McDaniel, former offensive coordinator, head coach. General manager, Dave Ziegler, from the pan, from the Pats. Uh, the, offense, the offense coordinator is Mick Lombardi. Uh, the son, if I'm not mistaken, of Michael Lombardi. Also came over from the Patriots. He was their wide receiver coach, now offensive coordinator. And then you have Patrick Graham, who... Came from the Giants as their defense coordinator. Now is going to take over the reins uh, in Las Vegas as their defense coordinator. And I believe, uh, I don't have his, actually, I think I have his lineage up. And if I'm not mistaken, Graham at one point was also with the Patriots. And if we go back into his history before he was the Giants uh, defensive coordinator, he was at the Dolphins as a coordinator, Packers before that, Giants before that, and boom, there you go, Patriots. He was with the Patriots from 2009 all the way through to 2015. So like I said, Patriots West out in Las Vegas. Uh, They get rid of Mike Mayock. He was the only one left from the Gruden uh, regime that was there. Uh, Gruden, obviously, he was let go a long time ago in the email uh, disaster, if you will. One one of the open lawsuits that uh, we will touch upon later in the program, but uh, he gets thrown out the door. Mayock behind him together throughout, well, I, I guess Mayock's record is longer than Gruden's because Gruden left before he did, but Mayock, three seasons at Raider GM, he's 25 and 24, one playoff appearance. So not a great three-year stint for him, along with questionable draft picks, but Gruden and Mayock and the Raiders liked who they liked, and now it's going to be McDaniels and Ziegler to try to figure out how to take those pieces and make them work. But should be interesting. You know, McDaniels, everybody's been waiting for the next crack he was going to get. And it looked like it was going to be with the Colts a couple of years back, and he accepted the job. And then all of a sudden, turned around, pulled a 180, and said, sorry, I am not taking the job. And the question became, why would one do that? And it was assumed by multiple people, uh, me included, I kind of thought that he was going to be there for the long haul and then ultimately take the reins from, I said taking the reins, I mean, how many times? Here we go, cliche monster. There we go, 
um, take the reins from a one Bill Belichick and take control of the Patriots. But now I wonder if somebody along the line said, hey, don't take that Colts job because you're going to be out of quarterback because Mr. Luck is not happy and he does not want to play that much longer. And do you really want to take out over this Colts roster with no quarterback? Uh, the answer would have been no, and that could have also been a reason that uh, Daniels passed on that job. But whatever the reason was, he was the quarterback for the Broncos way back in the day. The Tim Tebow 3-16 game uh, playoff victory over the Steelers, after which they got thumped and demolished by the Patriots the following week. But after losing his gig there, uh, he just went back to New England. He's been there ever since, and now he gets finally another crack at head coaching in Las Vegas. So after the Raiders, I think the next team of note is probably the Minnesota Vikings because, again, it's a roster that has a bunch of talent, and they have made holistic changes just like the Raiders did. They out goes Mike Zimmer, out goes Rick Spielman, coach, GM, Gonzo, uh, you know, time had just eclipsed for the two of them, and things were not getting any better. So after a certain amount of time, whether you want to blame Kirk Cousins or not, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, the variable of time usually works against the coaches more so than the talent. So out goes those two. In comes Kevin O'Connell. Kevin O'Connell is... Previously, the Rams offensive coordinator. So once again, you see Sean McVay and his coaching tree continue to bleed throughout the NFL. Kevin O'Connell will come in as the head coach. He will bring along with him Wes Phillips to be the offensive coordinator. Phillips was previously the Rams passing game coordinator and tight end coach. So again, here you go with more Rams lineage. Ed Donatel will be the defensive coordinator for the team. Donatel came from the Broncos. He was there at D.C. previously. And obviously when they blew out that regime, that made him available. And then as a general manager to replace Spielman, it will be Quasi Adolfo Mensa, who has come in uh, and is very uh, highly regarded. And we'll see if he can make the additions to this roster to try to overcome the Kurt Cousins uh, impediments both in skill and cap and it sounds like Adolfo Mensa has already tried to attack the cap as he restructured Cousins deal just today lowering the cap value by I think about 12 million is what I just saw uh, before I came on so already the GM working his stuff there with Cousins so it looks like they're going to go with Cousins make it work make the cap work and find a way to get the best out of the talent that is Kirk Cousins so that was the Minnesota Vikings the next up on the list you know now we're going to start going to the teams that kind of suck right because some of these other teams make wholesale changes that were very uh, different than the previous past of the organization and very uncharacteristically uncharacteristic like and so let's start with the Giants because what you saw from the Giants was basically the first signs of the Mara family saying you know what maybe we're not going to 
make every single call regardless of what anybody tells us. Maybe we're finally going to let the reins go to a general manager. And I think, unfortunately, that it came at the hands of Brian Flores and ultimately turned into a colossal lawsuit that will be around for quite a while. But the hiring of Brian Dable showed you that the Maras have taken a backseat and that Joe Shane is the man in control of this organization at this point. And so Joe Shane gets hired as a general manager. He brings in Brian Dable. Dable is now the head coach after obviously doing a phenomenal job with Josh Allen and the Bills' offense. He is going to bring in Mike Kafka to be his offense coordinator. Kafka is coming from Kansas City. He was the quarterback's coach over there, and he will be the OC, while Wink Martindale will end up being the defense coordinator. So, like we had mentioned, Graham earlier before. Graham was there. I think the Giants wanted to keep him, but unfortunately... If you were the D.C. and you didn't get considered for the head coaching job when you thought that you would have been a qualified candidate, do you really want to stay there anymore? Not to mention they had the whole Patriot synergy going out west over to Vegas. So Graham packs up and takes off. That leaves an uh, availability at the D.C. Uh, spot. And then all of a sudden the Ravens decide they're going to move on from Wink Martindale. So you, you have a vetted talent out there to fill the spot, and the Giants jump on that. So out goes Judge, out goes Garrett, out goes that shitbox GM that was David Gettleman, and now they have an entirely new regime, one that seems to reflect a changing of the guard, at least in terms of ownership there with the Giants. It looks like John Mara finally is going to let go, although there are some rumblings on uh, the Twitter. There's some rumblings on the Twitter that Mr. Mara is not ready to let go of Saquon Barkley, although there could be a trade available for him currently, which Joe Shane does or does not want to do. Depends on what you believe in, on Twitter, but uh, and I forgot the guy's name. I see him and he pops up and he always throws shit against the wall. And some of it's good, some of it is just complete junk, but he was the one that wrote it. I don't know the name offhand. Isn't a good job of prep by me, but um, it, I think it came out just today that they had something on the line. Mara didn't want to leave the Giants without star talent and Barkley's their guy, and so he wasn't on board with it. You know, We'll see the validity of that, uh, that rumor as time goes on. But anyway, the Giants make a big wholesale change to their organization by changing everybody from the GM all the way through their coaching ranks. And so similar to that, the Chicago Bears also made a huge changeover in their squad because they finally got rid of Ryan Pace. They got rid of Nagy. And they are going to go with a completely new regime featuring Matt Eberflus, of all people. The defensive coordinator from the Colts will come over to take the reins here. And he was hired by Ryan Poles, the the new general manager who comes from Kansas City. Now, later on, we, we're going to talk a, a hot second about the Brian Flores situation. And I don't know if I really want to get into all the race kind of stuff, but one of the coaches that has always been talked about is Eric Bieniemy, And Eric Bieniemy has not gotten hired. There have been talks about maybe some of his, uh, you know, checkered past from way back in the day has followed through with him. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a reporter. I don't have inside knowledge, but I will say this. If the new general manager of the Chicago Bears, 
comes from Kansas City, right? And he was the executive director of player personnel for Kansas City. And I don't even think he brought in uh, what's-his-face to interview. I don't even think he brought in Biennemi to interview. If that happened in that way, and I'm almost positive it did, I mean, I think that tells you all you need to know about Eric Biennemi. It sounds like he's a, maybe a better coordinator than a coach if he's actually a good coordinator to begin with, which is still questionable, right? So is it Andy Reid? Is it Eric Biennemi? Whatever it is, Ryan Poles did not see enough in him to bring him in to interview. And I think that's all you need to know about the Eric Bieniemy uh, argument. If there was something to be said about uh, coaching candidates and you wanted to go down the race route, I think there are other ones that you could talk about more than Eric Bieniemy. But anyway, let's get back on track here with the Bears. So Ryan Poles comes in as the GM. Ember Flues comes in as the head coach. Defensive coach, a little questionable because, uh, you know, with Chicago, you really want to take care of their offense and try to put something out there that Justin Fields can work with. Um, It'll be interesting to see how they go about that uh, and what their mentality was for hiring a defensive-minded coach, but whatever it might be. um, They're going to throw the dice on on some of these other coordinator hires. So for OC, they're going to get Luke Getze. He's going to come in as the offense coordinator, and he will be coming from the Packers. Go figure. So they're going to take some of the black and blue division with them. They're going to take the Packers QB coach, passing game coordinator. That's what Getze was. Getze was, and he will now be the offensive coordinator. As for their defensive coordinator, they're going to take Allen Williams, and he's coming from Indianapolis, where he was the Colts' defensive back and safeties coach. So you're going with some youth here in terms of the two coordinators. Colts obviously having some familiarity uh, between Eberflus and Williams, seeing that they were on the same coaching staff. Uh, Getze, you know, from the outside coming in, but obviously a Packers QB coach, passing game coordinator. I would imagine that the hopes are that he will be the one that can guide Justin Fields and his development. So Bears were the next on the list. After the Bears, we'll head south. And we'll, you know what? We'll get in a plane. We'll go way south, right? So let's head down to Jacksonville, where Jacksonville ended up uh, doing another wholesale change. Not to their GM, so they're going to have to live with bulk yet again. But Doug Peterson comes in. He'll be the head coach. He comes off the pine. He took a year off. Uh, was he one year? One year or two years? I forget. what. It, no, one year. Yeah, because um, they just saw Sirianni, uh, Citriani, whatever. Uh, it was his first year. So Peterson now comes back after taking one year off, and he's going to take over for Jacksonville. Um, they, he's going to bring in Press Taylor as his offensive coordinator, who worked with Peterson in Philadelphia and spent the 2021 season as an offensive assistant with the Colts. As for the defensive side of the ball, they're going to bring in Mike Caldwell. Mike Caldwell is a former Buccaneers inside linebackers coach. So again, they are taking a little bit of familiarity there with the Taylor uh, hiring as OC and then throwing the dice a little bit with some defensive uh, with the DC position as they're going to give Caldwell the shot there to be their leader on defense. So that's Jacksonville and obviously they got rid of Urban Meyer. That was such a colossal, colossal 
bad hire in their regard. A two and eleven uh, before he was shit canned, and on top of that, it was just story after story after story. Which is funny because if you go back, there were people like Mike Francesa that were saying that Urban Meyer, yeah, he was going to be fantastic. This that and the rest, and just it, it's not them. He, you know what? Urban Meyer does. He runs college programs. He makes sure that he gets the best talent, and then he lets the best talent run on the field. He puts some coordinators in there to put them in good spots, and then you know he, he takes a couple of titles and takes the credit for it. But when you end up going and playing with the big boys, as word on the street spread, uh, it doesn't work too well, that same approach. And now you've seen that several times where I think that he, he, the more you see people from the college ranks come up, to the NFL, they're really going to have to be probably a, a, a an offensive-minded coach. You know, somebody that ran some kind of crazy program. You know, you take the Cliff Kingsbury, right, uh, where he came in and he came in to you know basically work Kyler Murray and change you know, that offense and that team and try to kind of reformat what the Cardinals were into what the, where they wanted to go. And that was on the off side of the ball. And I think that those would be the hires you would see coming from the college ranks. The old school Urban Meyer, uh, you know, Steve Spurrier, Steve Spurrier, you're not going to see that shit anymore. I, I mean, not nowadays. I, you know, the college program doesn't translate to professional football. It's just a completely different animal, and those times have passed, right? I mean, there was a time that it worked. You saw Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson come up from the ranks way back when and really turn it over. Um, you know, Harborough obviously went the college route, then came the pros. He went to the Super Bowl. But I think it's going to be few and far between that you, uh, you know, see the Urban Meyer-esque uh, coaches come to the NFL. So uh, that was Jacksonville. We'll head over to the Saints. Saints obviously lost their head coach, Sean Payton. He finally stepped away. Uh, you know, stories about that are pretty wide, you know, wide spreading, wide spreading, uh, um, whatever. A wide array of stories coming out of New Orleans as to why, uh, you know, that Sean Payton called it quits. There was obviously stories about how he wanted to go to Dallas. It was all set up. And then New Orleans ended up pulling the plug because LeBron James ended up getting Anthony Davis traded from the Pelicans. And the owner didn't want to you know, get rid of Peyton as well because that would have taken New Orleans away from their biggest prominent talents in Anthony Davis and then Sean Peyton. So whatever the truth of it was, Peyton finally called it quits. Turned around, he was out. Didn't take the didn't take the broadcasting money. Uh, surprised at that. So you would think that he is aiming to come back into the coaching ranks at some point. But for now, it will not be with the uh, New Orleans Saints as they have now moved on from him. They are going to promote internally. They're basically just taking everything that was left there, sans Sean Payton, and then promoting it into head coaching ranks. So Dennis Allen, who was their defensive coordinator, is going to get promoted to head coach. Pete Carmichael was their OC. He will stay. Ryan Nielsen, who was the co-DC, will now be co-DC continually because Dennis Allen will probably, you know, call 
plays on defense. If he doesn't, I, you know, him and Nielsen have the, the code DC and the working relationship that they'll be able to, uh, you know, keep things moving along as they have been. So Peyton out, and then the underlings in Saintville will then take the reins for them. So that was the Saints. The other two changes that are left, number one is the Houston Texans. I mean, there is really not much to say about this one other than the Houston member club has really went into the deepest of depths of shit uh, in the NFL because Bill O'Brien really just destroyed any kind of momentum that that club had when he just traded everybody away. He never should have been given the GM uh, duties. He was. He screwed everything up. Terrible trade after terrible trade, and they are just stuck in the lower tier of clubs right now in terms of talent, synergy. I synergy twice in the podcast. I'm using the word synergy, but um, they just don't have a lot going for them right now, unfortunately. And so the latest victim of Bill O'Brien's demise uh, ends up being the coach that came in to replace him. Uh, because David Culley ended up getting one season in which he had nothing to work with, thanks in large part to the Deshaun Watson disaster. And so Watson ends up missing the entire year. Culley's got nothing to work with. And so they have a terrible season and show him the door. So after a 4-13 and season, Cully gets shown the door, and then instead of going out and looking for other coaches, I uh, think they talked to a couple. Uh, I forgot the candidates that they did talk to, but they end up going with Lovey Smith. Well, one of them was uh, Brian Flores, right? And uh, and But they end up promoting Lovey Smith. So Lovey Smith, who has already had two runs in the NFL, that didn't amount to much. I mean, he was okay in Chicago. They did get to the Super Bowl that one year, but ultimately could not get him to the promised land, and things got worse. And it wasn't the last place he went, because after that he did go to Tampa Bay and then bounced and went to the college ranks. And so after the college ranks, he comes back up to the Houston Texans. He's their defensive coordinator, associate head coach, and now he is the head coach again, which I think of all of the hires this year, I think that the Lovey Smith hire was the one that was the worst of the bunch by far. Uh, there was no reason that Lovey Smith should have gotten this job at all. There was other people out there, uh, and we'll talk about some of those uh, candidates later that should have gotten the gig, but uh, Lovey Smith was not worthy of getting another shot in the NFL, uh, at least when you compare them to the other people that were available and ready and chomping at the bit to, uh, you know, to be a head coach at the top professional level of football. So um, those were all the, the big changes. The last one I left for the end, because obviously it is the Dolphins. And this one is quite involved because obviously it was the Brian Flores lawsuit. He gets canned, turns around, sues everybody. Uh, the Dolphins could be losing their owner if any of these accusations end up being true which I'm sure they will do an investigation into. But they are left no coach. Uh, a, a 
owner who is radioactive almost because you know he's going to have to prove his innocence because even though it's innocent until proven guilty, the way that this lawsuit went down, uh, he is going to be cast guilty until proven innocent, especially with all of the gambling tangents to this lawsuit and now compounded by the fact that what happened with Calvin Ridley. So you have a lot going on in terms of Stephen Ross being the owner uh, in the future. I, it might not happen. I, I don't know. It really depend on what they turn out in this investigation. But anyway, like I said, the last team that had a change at the top was the Miami Dolphins. Flores gets fired. They end up hiring Mike Daniel. Mike McDaniel. Mike McDaniel comes over from the 49ers. He was their offensive coordinator, and he will now be their head coach. 39 years old McDaniel is and he will get his crack to run that organization in order to help him reach the promised land he is going to hire Frank Smith as their offensive coordinator Uh, Smith was actually the former Chargers run game coordinator so staying on offense on uh, that on those two hires with a head coach that was a offense coordinator and then an offense coordinator who is a run game coordinator for the chire the chargers and uh and so that does it now we'll get more into the brian flores thing later but those were all of the teams that had whole school changes from the top of the organization down so now there were other changes though not you know so wholesale across the nfl and a lot of those had to do with coordinators and some of them very big and so we will actually go to los los angeles for the first one because while the Rams were able to grab the Lombardi Trophy and raise it high above their heads, they did lose their offensive coordinator because Kevin O'Connell, like we mentioned, went to the Vikings. So they needed to fill that spot, and what they did was they hired Liam Cohen. Now, Liam Cohen's 36 years old. He was previously the Kentucky offensive coordinator, uh, but he actually was with the Rams prior to that. So if you go through the Liam Cohen lineage, and we'll actually touch upon this uh, later on, but I'll put it here because it makes sense. Um, He was with the Rams from 2018 all the way through 2020, um, and then he left his last position with the Rams was as their quarterback coach, went to Kentucky, was their offensive coordinator, and now he has come back to replace Kevin O'Connell, who left to be the head coach of the Vikings. So the Rams are going to bring in Liam Cohen. The Ravens, who have forever been a big defensive team, had a bad run last year on the defensive side of the ball, and that led to them releasing Dink Wharton. Don Wink Martindale, and so they had to go replace Wink. They end up bringing in Mike McDonald. Now, Mike McDonald, he is going to come from the University of Michigan, where he served under Jim Harbour as his defensive coordinator. But he was part of the coaching staff with the Ravens from 2014 to 2020, before that 2021 run with Michigan. So the Ravens going back and hiring what I I presume they thought was good young talent that they lost to Michigan, but were able to bring them back for a crack at defensive coordinator with their franchise. So not franchise, member club. It's member club, folks. If you don't know, that's how it works. It's not a franchise. It's a member club. So 
Other big-time offense coordinator or coordinators, this one's going to be offensive, that left their club and had to get replaced was over in Buffalo. Like we had mentioned, Brian Dable out, head coach of the Giants. They needed to replace him. They are going to hire Ken Dorsey to be their offensive coordinator. He had served as the Buffalo's quarterback's coach for the past three seasons. And so he did have a hand in molding Josh Allen. So they'll try to keep some consistency there by promoting from within and taking the quarterback coach, making him the offensive coordinator. He also had spent years with the Panthers, actually from 2013 through 17, he was their quarterback's coach. And that also had Cam Newton's 2015 MVP season in there. If you remember, he had a monster year. Um, And so, anyway, Dorsey will stay with the Bills to replace Dable, who left to go to the Giants. So, the Packers also were short an offensive coordinator because, like we had mentioned, Green Bay lost Nathaniel Hackett, who ended up going over to Denver. So, what the Packers decided to do was they decided to hire from within. And Adam Stenovich is now the offensive coordinator after graduating from being their offensive line coach and run game coordinator. So, they try to keep consistency within their club as well by promotion. And Stenovich will then replace the spot taken previously by Hatchet. I would imagine that Mr. Rogers is happy with that, or he's just happy anyway because he basically runs this show regardless. So Stenovich will stay, and like we said, Hackett is gone. So that was an offensive coordinator change for the Packers. The Steelers had a defensive coordinator change as they saw Keith Butler, their previous defensive coordinator, retire. So he finished up his 19th season with the team, called it quits, and so they ended up going for Terrell Austin. And Austin had served previously as Pittsburgh's senior defensive assistant and secondary coach. So again, what you see with the prior teams we just talked about is that they like to keep consistency and are just going to grab from underneath the individuals that have left and promote within. That happened with the Steelers, so Terrell Austin, now the defensive coordinator for Pittsburgh. So we'll head out over to Seattle. Seattle lost Ken Norton. They ended up getting rid of Kenny after four seasons as their D.C. Last year, not a good one for Mr. Norton and the Seattle defense. Seattle ranked 28th in the NFL in total defense, 31st in the pat- against the pass. So all of that together led to Norton getting shown the door. And they ended up bringing in Clint Hurt as a defensive coordinator. He had previously been Seattle's defensive line coach for the last five seasons, assistant head coach for the previous four. This kind of feels like another, much like the send-off of, I mean, Bobby Wagner, uh, Russell Wilson. This kind of feels like Pete Carroll trying one last hurrah at what he feels is the right way to coach and manage this team, which is what led him to the Super Bowl against the Broncos, right? You kind of luck into Russell Wilson. You're going to build defense the way that you want to do it. You're going to call it the way you want to do it. You're going to run the offense by running the football. And so this this hiring here just feels like more of that, is that they're going to take Clint 
uh, Clint Hurt, and they're going to promote him the defense coordinator because he's going to work well with Mr. Carroll as he tries to wrap up here. Carroll's, what, 70 now coaching the Seahawks? So out goes Norton. In comes Clint Hurt. Another promote promotion from within. We'll head out to Carolina where there was not a promotion within. And in this regard, Carolina was in need of an offensive coordinator because Joe Brady got booted uh, intra-season. So Brady left, I think, when they were, let me see, I have it here, 5-7 and seven is when the record that they were when they got rid of him. And so here he comes, the man, the myth, the legend, Ben McAdoo. Ben McAdoo is back in the league, folks. He wears suits that are too big. He tries to slick his hair like Pat Riley. None of it worked. But Ben McAdoo, after flaming out horrifically in New York, and he's actually a decent guy. Um, there is some kind of tangibility, not between me, but people I know and him, and uh, they speak highly of him. I, you know, I don't know if that means anything for his offensive prowess, but hey, look, Ben was right about a couple things. It was time for Eli to go, right? And he had run that offense pretty well. So, you know, I don't know if that was the head coaching opportunity that he should have been granted. Uh, obviously, a lot of head coaches fail in their first time out. And then the question becomes, do they get a second one? I don't know if, you know, Ben McAdoo is going to get a second one anywhere down the road. But he was okay as an offense coordinator. And now he will come into Carolina where they're going to have to make some kind of adjustments because even though they took a swing with Sam Darnold, we all know that that is not going to be any long-term solution at the quarterback position. Uh, probably not going to be one in the short term because they are going to have to make a change there. Deshaun Watson has been talked about, but whoever it is, they're going to have Ben McAdoo that is going to be calling the shots for them on the offensive side of the ball. And I don't where has he been? I think he might have been down in Tampa uh, for a hot second. Let me see if he was anywhere. I can't even find out if he was anywhere recently. I don't think he was. But anyway, I, I mean, obviously McAdoo's big deal was that he was the head coach of the Giants and the OC of the Giants after he left Green Bay to take those positions. Uh, and then he, you know, had a horrific, horrific time as the head coach of the Giants. He's gone, and now he is back. So um, so that was Carolina's change at OC. And then there was one other change at offensive coordinator that was made, and that was in Detroit, where Ben Johnson, was given the offensive coordinator role. Now, Ben was heavily involved with Dan Campbell after Campbell took over the play-calling duties intra-season. So he was the tight ends coach. He got involved with Campbell when Lynn was shown the door, and now he has been given the full uh, control of that offense. Anthony Lynn, he took off, but he did land on his feet because Anthony Lynn ultimately ended up going to be a coach with the San Francisco 49ers, if you can believe that one. So, Anthony Lynn goes. It was not a match made in heaven. Not at all. And so, he is out. He goes to San Francisco. And in the meantime, Ben Johnson takes over as offense coordinator. So, those were all the big-time organizational changes. Uh, we will head over to second down now, where we were talk about the quarterbacks and that position. And this is where we had our big, colossal... <laughs> train wreck car accident of a down so here we go quarterbacks in our second down second down, second down. and so like i said 
this is where I come in and start talking about the quarterback changes that go throughout the league. Because if it's not the organizational overhauls that impact the league the most, the next, if not equivalent, uh, spot of change that has the largest impact is definitely the quarterback position. And so here is when I was going to talk about Tom Brady. And I was going to say, of all the quarterbacks that have left the building, it is Tom Brady that will have the biggest impact. Because after... 44 years of being on this earth, he decided to finally hang it up. Seven Super Bowl rings, 10 total appearances, five of those 10 appearances, he was the Super Bowl MVP. He was a 15-time Pro Bowler. He played 316 regular season games to the tune of a record of 243 wins, 73 losses. In the playoffs, he almost had three full seasons of games, basing it on a 16-game season, where he played 47 games and his playoff record was 35-12. and 12. And this wasn't a guy that ended on a weak streak. No, because with the Buccaneers, he was 24-9 and nine over his two seasons and 5-1 and one in the playoffs with the Bucs. So it was a 44-year-old that went out on top and quite a decorated career. If you want to go into all of his stats throughout the regular season and his career, he threw 624 touchdowns to 203 interceptions. Good for a 3.07 ratio. So for every interception he threw, he threw over three touchdowns. How good is that? Well, Peyton Manning, who everybody thinks is a pretty phenomenal quarterback, well, Peyton came in at a ratio of 2.15. So Brady was almost a full touchdown better compared from interception to touchdown ratio. Completion percentage... Regular season, this is Brady was 64.2%. His rating for his career during the regular season was 97.6. And that broke down in the playoffs by only seven points. So his quarterback rating in the playoffs was 90.4. Well, you know, see, he fell off a little bit in the playoffs. Yeah, we'll get this. Through all of his playoff seasons in New England, he was 89.8. And the guy went out on top because his playoff quarterback rating with the Buccaneers for those six games was 94.9. I mean, you couldn't retire on any higher of a level. Ten Super Bowl appearances, seven of those wins, five Super Bowl MVPs, all the shit that I just said. All of it. Phenomenal career. And now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to have to move on and find another quarterback. Except, he just unretired today. So, uh, all that stuff that I just said, throw it out the window, crimple it up. It is junk aroo. That ended up being nothing. Why? Because he's coming back. So, he's not going anywhere. So, Tampa Bay will bring back all the pieces that they had this year. They will try to find ways to improve the roster, do a little drafting, whatever it might be. But they're going to shuttle out basically the same team they had last year. Uh, Minus Ali Marpet. He took off. He retired. I wonder if they will make a play to bring him back or if he will consider it now that Mr. Brady has returned. But uh, the first 
piece of my second down, which was to talk about Tom Brady retiring from the NFL and leaving Tampa Bay in quite a quandary is all but not as Mr. Brady ends up coming back from retirement. But who did retire was Ben Roethlisberger. He finally hung it up. He probably hung it up a couple of years too late. Regardless, another phenomenal career to speak of. In the regular season, he was 165 81 and 1 in the playoffs he was 13 and 10 he was a two-time Super Bowl champion did have the one loss to Green Bay he was a six-time pro bowler and legendary quarterback wearing the black and gold black and yellow black and yellow black and yellow black and yellow but Roethlisberger decides to hang it up so they will need to find a quarterback there and so if you think about it This had a little bit more impact when Brady left, but now Brady's back. Roethlisberger's gone. If you think about it, and I've talked about this in podcasts past, that the quarterback position in the NFL has gone through a colossal change over the past, I don't know, five to eight years. If you think about the people that have left, they're all big-name people. Now, some of these might be longer, you know, that retired a little bit ago, but Drew Brees... Philip Rivers, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, Jay Cutler, Carson Palmer, Andrew Luck, Alex Smith. All those guys were lead quarterbacks for member clubs for a long time. And now they're all gone. And you're going to need to replace that talent. So you're going to need all these other quarterbacks to step up or continue to perform the way that they have been. So... Pat Mahomes, Josh Allen, Josh Burrow, Justin Herbert, Kyler Murray, Trevor Lawrence, Lamar Jackson, Mac Jones, Baker Mayfield, Tua, Justin Fields, Zach Wilson. You're going to need these guys to step up, to mature, uh, hopefully not tank, because this league needs quarterback talent. And what you have seen over the past five to eight years is a lot of the lead talent of the past decade or so retire. So now you're going to need to fill that void. And so that's what you're going to need from the younger ranks. Now, other quarterback changes ended up not being changes at all. Uh, Aaron Rodgers ended up staying. So the Green Bay situation is what it was last year. You lose an offense coordinator, but everything else comes back. They end up franchising Devontae Adams, so they're hoping to bring him back. And so they will try to run it back, and get past uh, the 49ers, which obviously stunned them last year when they thought they had everything going and then it all fell apart. So other quarterbacks that are not staying are going to be Russell Wilson, which we talked about. He goes to Denver. That has changed Denver's whole outlook. Carson Wentz goes to the Commanders, Washington football team, Redskins, whichever moniker you want to call them. Wentz went to the Washington team. So that ended up being for like junk picks. Um, I I had it here. He ended up going for a 2022 second and third rounder and a 2023 third rounder. So they got him for a second and a third and then a third, which is much less than what the Colts gave up for him because the Colts ultimately had a kick in a first-round draft pick. He played so much. If you remember how the draft was uh, the – sorry – 
how the trade was with Wentz to get him to Indianapolis. If he played X amount of downs, it ended up kicking up the trade to first-round talent, and that's what ended up happening. So the Colts lost a first-rounder for this year, and then here they get back a second and third-rounder this year, and then they get a third-rounder next year. Kind of a haul for... uh, the Colts considering, I mean, why did Washington want to give up, you know, a second and a third plus a third for Carson Wentz, who very well probably was cut. I mean, maybe there would have been some interest, but you know, Carson Wentz is going to be the answer for Washington. Are you fucking kidding me? That's not, that's not the answer at all. But anyway, Wentz ends up going to the Commanders, so Washington will have somebody under center. And then the last name of note right now is Deshaun Watson, because sexual chocolate, Mr. Deshaun Watson, he is in play. Reason he is in play uh, is because the grand jury did not indict him. So he still has plenty of those civil cases to get rid of. However, he does not have to deal with the criminal investigations and the criminal charges because the grand jury said no. And it was kind of crazy because from uh, the stories that came out, they only wanted to talk to one of the uh, one of the witnesses that the prosecution had brought to testify against Watson. So I, I don't think that they had any inkling that there was criminal activity. And so this story will build. And whether or not this is a book later on in life in 10, 20 years, this whole Watson deal is beyond sketchy. Just beyond sketchy. Now, I never thought the guy was going to play again because after the civil cases came out, then all of a sudden one girl flipped and decided that she was going to testify in a criminal nature. And all I thought you needed was one. And I think there was a couple. But whatever the hell that girl told to investigators and ultimately the prosecutor and whatever was presented to the grand jury, it was not convincing enough. So this really, I think, is going to ultimately be some kind of just sexual fetish story that got way out of hand and unfortunately derailed this guy's career for a a year, a year plus. It depends on when they get rid of this damn thing. But um, unfortunate that it happened because I'm sure some of these girls that had this, uh, that are on the civil case, um, probably did indeed feel violated, right? I mean, I, I just think that it was part of this crazy Deshaun Watson game that he plays. And if you've listened to some people, uh, that are familiar with the industry, which I am not. Um, but, you know, it doesn't sound like this is really crazy outside of uh, the realm of normalcy. I mean, not everywhere, but in the behavior that it was done for Mr. Watson, it does seem as though that this may happen from time to time across the United States. And obviously a multi-million dollar athlete uh, being there, being the point of focus, he probably felt as though he could try to solicit uh, more than the average Joe. But anyway, regardless, now I'm talking about shit I don't even know or understand about. So that much said and done, Watson, with the lack of criminal case involved, 
looks to be in play on a new team, wherever that might be. So those are the coaching, the QB changes. Obviously, one big QB change, not a QB change at all, and that was Mr. Tom Brady, who as of Sunday evening has decided to come back for the 2022 season. So with third down, we will check out the next State of the Union, and that will be in the realm of broadcasting. Third down. So 2022 is going to see some wholesale changes in the NFL broadcasting realm. And let's start with Amazon. Amazon is the exclusive home now of Thursday Night Football. Now, I haven't looked and I don't know how that's going to work because I'm thinking about sports bars and how they're going to broadcast the Thursday night football game if it's an Amazon exclusive. You would probably need some kind of streaming device. If you're a sports bar that has multiple TVs, you're probably going to have to figure out how to stream that to all of the TVs. Uh, I guess you could probably take a... Uh, an Amazon device, or I think you could do any devices now. Uh, you know, if you don't have a TV that is a smart TV that has the Amazon Prime app on it, you could try to do some kind of streaming stick, put that into a splitter of some sort, and run HDMI cables to all of your other TVs. Um, regardless, it's going to be interesting to hear how the bars um, are able to you know, pull off the operations of broadcasting the Thursday night football game, seeing that Amazon is not an over-the-air broadcast, right? It's not on cable. It is not over the air. You can't do either of those. So you're going to have to figure out a way to get this streaming content onto the TVs across sports bars in America. Anyway, so Amazon is the host, uh, the home of Thursday night football. They need somebody to end up being the color and the play-by-play. It's not going to be Mr. Mr. Buck and Mr. Aikman, because they have gone elsewhere. So Amazon has locked in Kirk Herbstreit. He's going to end up doing color, so an ESPN property will be coming to Thursday night to do the Amazon games, and that is going to be Herbstreit and who? We don't know. The play-by-play is still open and in the air. Will it be Al Michaels? I don't know about that, but maybe Michaels is still available, but it's going to be Kirk Herbstreet as the color. Now, as for Mr. Buck and Mr. Aikman, they obviously were Fox's lead team. They did the Thursday night games. They did all of the Fox Super Bowls. They will no longer be doing anything related to Fox as they have now gone to ESPN. Uh... Fox is probably going to end up going with Kevin Burkhart, I imagine, as their number one play-by-play guy. And that is a pretty crazy story in itself because Burkhart goes from being a local Jersey broadcaster who, I, if I'm not mistaken, in the early 2000s ran the high school radio uh, kind of clipping program for updates on... Uh, New Jersey football, uh, I mean, before smartphones and before, you know, the internet and all the rest of it. So they had a show all day Saturday where they had stringers and the rest go out and report scores in from around the state. And Burkhart, 
was the lead guy, and he ran that program. And so he goes from New Jersey high school football uh, to Fox's number one play-by-play guy. Uh, pretty amazing. But and, and his travels obviously went to SNY to do the Mets first and then progressed on from there. So Fox loses Buck and Aikman, probably put Burkhart as the number one team. Back to Buck and Aikman, they go to ESPN. They will be doing ESPN's Monday Night Football. So Monday Night Football, alive and well, as we have Troy Aikman and Joe Buck doing Monday Night Football. Which is funny because I believe it was with my brother, it could have been just with me, that I was talking about Monday Night Football and how it didn't feel big anymore, right? Especially with the broadcasting uh, crews that they had put out there in recent past, right? I mean, Booger McFarlane was an absolute disaster. Uh, Lance Riddick, uh, a nice guy, uh, pleasurable for me to listen to, but Greasy and uh, who was it? Uh, Steve Cohen? I, or uh, I forgot who the other guy was, who the play by play guys. Uh, but I mean, it was just forgettable. Completely and utterly forgettable. So finally, with the team of Troy Aikman and Joe Buck, you get a broadcasting team that, I mean, obviously the schedule dictates how big the Monday night football game feels, but with two broadcasters who, you know, were known as the number one team for, you know, Fox for decades on end, um, it will once again have a big feel to the Monday Night Football game on ESPN. Um, So we covered Herb Street being the color for the Thursday Night Football games. Buck and Aikman will be doing the Monday Night games on ESPN. Kevin Burkhart will take over for Fox. That leaves Al Michaels. Like I said, he is in limbo right now. They don't know where he's going to go. Maybe he ends up with Herb Street as color. Maybe he sits on the sidelines. He is gone because they have passed the torch to Mike Tirico, and Tirico will now be working with Collinsworth doing the Sunday night football games. That's going to change, too, because everything that you read, Collinsworth is on his way out. So they are ultimately going to flip him for who? Doesn't know. Drew Brees was one of the people that they had hinted towards. But whatever it is, Collinsworth has made a, a nice career for himself, probably more than he should have. Some people really like him. I think the majority do not. Uh, I don't care either way. I I never get hung up on a play-by-play or a a color guy. I'm kind of watching the game on my own, and I'm not listening. But, you know, the big games, you do hear them, and you do judge them a little bit. And uh, people have been very critical of Collinsworth. And so, uh, you know, the longer that you're with any given company, the more money you're going to make. And I think there'll probably be a natural uh, switcheroo happening down the line for Sunday Night Football. But for 2022, it will be Tarico and Collinsworth. Um, as for other broadcasting notes, Aaron Andrews, sideline reporter for Fox, her contract is up. I imagine they re-sign her. I don't know if Aaron, Aaron Andrews has the juice that she did years back, because remember when she was at ESPN, she was, you know, uh, the newest, greatest thing because she was a young, attractive female on the sideline. She was doing the college reporting, I think, at the time. And everybody did, you know, all the game day fans, everybody went goo goo gaga for Mrs. Andrews, right? You know, now I, all the way down. I don't know if she's a property like she was. I don't know if, if there's any real sports um, broadcasters that command that same kind of 
uh, fevering, uh, following, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Ah, whatever, who cares? Uh, I screwed that up. But anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. That has such an avid following that she did back in the, uh, what, late 90s, early 2000s when she was on ESPN. Um, you know, it, it's just it's just not a thing anymore, right? So uh, Andrew's contract's up. I imagine she stays at Fox. Uh, and then you have all the guys that passed on on TV. That was the other big news and note, right? Because originally it looked like you could have had Sean McVay in the broadcast booth. You could have had Sean Payton in the broadcast booth. You could have had John Lynch in the broadcast booth. They all end up saying no. <laughs> they all say no thanks. We don't want it. <laughs> we like our jobs. And so they ended up uh, passing on the millions and millions, millions and millions of dollars that was available to them to take on a broadcasting gig um, and to stay with what they were doing. Now, Peyton, obviously, it looks like he's going to go back to coaching at some point. McVay wanted to run it back, and Lynch, he likes his GM position. But uh, maybe down the line, maybe it's a little different. Uh, Lynch, obviously, he had some broadcasting in the past. Uh, McVay and Peyton did not. So we'll see what happens. But that is the overview of the broadcasting environment as of uh, today for the 2022 season. We still got a couple of things to fill in. Like we said, the play-by-play for Amazon, you know, probably Al Michaels, I would think. I don't know who else it might be. Um, but then Al Michaels could be on the outside, could be on the outside looking in. Uh, Michaels has no home right now. And just did the Super Bowl, and that might be his last broadcast for the foreseeable future. We'll have to wait and see. So with our final down, we will assess all of the legal limbo that is the NFL right now. Fourth down. All right, so let's get into it. The Brian Flores lawsuit. Look, it is public enemy number one right now for the NFL. They... Don't want any kind of legal issues being in the spotlight, much less one that involves racism, coaching, ownership, uh, gambling, tanking, you know, integrity of the game. And this lawsuit hits every single checkbox on the docket. I mean, it is an absolute disaster. Now... I'm not going to go through the entire lawsuit or the details of it. All that information is out there uh, for you to look uh, at your own time. Uh, I will just talk about a couple of things. Number one, I feel bad for Brian Flores because I, I feel that at his core, he's probably a pretty good coach. And I feel that John Mara definitely wanted him as the head coach of the New York Giants. And he was probably told as much at one point. Unfortunately, that the way it works in the NFL is that people want to hire the guys that they, guys or girls, that feel that is going to give them the best chance of victory. And while John Mara might have felt that Brian Flores was the coach that gave him the best chance of victory, and he was a New York City native. Unfortunately, he had already made the commitment to hire a general manager to replace David Gettleman and let that general manager do the hiring process. And so it didn't really matter what John Mara wanted because if he was going to stick to his word, 
then it was going to be the GM, which ended up being Phil Shane. Phil Shane, as everybody knew, was going to try to bring in Brian Dable because they had a working relationship together. And that was the reason why. He knew what kind of commodity Brian Dayball was. He knew what he had. He knew what he could do. And he knew that he wanted to bring that to New York to try to lead the Giants in the restoration of their club. No knock to Brian Flores. It just wasn't the guy that he wanted. And unfortunately, because of Mara's conversations with him, he got that feeling that it was going to be him. And then, obviously, the the Bill Belichick disaster. I mean, God, Bill Belichick. Terrible job by you. Um, uh, Emails the wrong Brian. And if any of you have seen the meme out there, it's a, a... Brian, it's uh, Belichick, and it says uh, he changes the names in his phone to say White Brian and Black Brian, which is kind of funny, right? Poor Bill can't use his cell phone. But he texts the wrong Brian, congratulations on the job, meant to save, meant to hit Dable, hit Flores instead. Flores hadn't had the interview with the Giants as of yet, so he was wondering how that could happen. Then he found out it was Dable, and then, unfortunately, he was pretty pissed off because he thought one thing and then it was the complete opposite of the reality that he thought he was living in. So anyway, I just don't think that this is a case that warrants the argument that Flores wants to make, which is that the NFL has had a history of potential racist hiring practices And not giving minority candidates a fair chance to own head coaching jobs in the NFL. And I know all the numbers, and they're not pretty per se. However, this is 2022. And I simply don't think that in 2022, NFL owners and the associated GMs are hiring coaches based on color. I think it's actually obnoxious to think that. These coaches, these GMs and owners want to hire coaches that are going to get them the Lombardi Trophy. Plain and simple. That's it. That's it. They're going to hire people that they're familiar with, people that they can see what they're getting, known quantities, known qualities, occasionally they're going to throw the dice because they want to try something new. And so when they want to try something new, then they're going to go to derivatives of known quantities and known qualities and known people, right? So if you want to really talk about the issue at hand, I don't think that the issue is the hiring of minority coaches, I think what should really be analyzed is the pipeline that presents the candidate pool for head coaches. Because head coaches come primarily from coordinator positions, college coaching ranks. I mean, 
occasionally a, 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 in retreads, right? Let, let's say that. It's, it's retreads, coordinators, and college coaches. Sometimes, you, you know, you get a Joe Judge in there, right? And we see how that went, right? Special, special teams coordinator didn't work out in the end. But it's the big name, it's the bigger name staff positions below head coach that get the promotions. And so if you want to fix the head coaching hires, you got to fix the candidate pool. And to do that, you got to figure out the pipeline. And I don't know how you do that necessarily. Because if you really want to look at the lineage of some of the current candidates and the current hires, you'll see that many of them start their coaching ranks way early. And so you've got to get coaches, if you want to increase the population of minority candidates that are in those positions, you probably have to have them travel the kind of test test the time tested uh, you know progression of coaches which is a couple of years out of school or, or at least a, a good duration um, uh, you know of time spent coaching you know starting at positional coaches moving up the ranks etc 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 I'll give you some examples to, to try to articulate what I'm saying here but for coaches who were former players you've got to think that yeah sure they experienced coaching while they played for quite a while, but they haven't actually done the coaching yet. So when they enter the coaching ranks, they're more or less time-wise behind the eight ball because they don't have the time of service that some of these other coaches who didn't play in the NFL had, you know, sharpening their knives, their coaching skills and their knives, uh, not physical knives, right? That, that, that's a legal problem that the NFL doesn't want. But um, that they've spent their time, you know, fine-tuning their skills in the position that the player-turned-candidate wants, right? So the, tied trest, the time-tested approach seems to be multiple years in the lower ranks of coaching you catch on with a, a tree of some sort or an individual that brings you through. So let's look at some of the coaches this year that are talked about in the in their candidacy, uh, ones that were passed over, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to take two that we had talked about earlier. Number one was Liam Cohen, right? So we'll start with Liam because he is an O.C., He is now the OC of the Rams. And in all likelihood, should the Rams continue to perform well, maybe make another Super Bowl run, that Liam would ultimately be a head coaching candidate in the next couple of years. So let's go to Liam's coaching history. Right? So... I can't find when he graduated, but I think it was mid mid to late uh, 2000s. So he becomes the quarterback's coach at Brown at 2010. He is the passing game coordinator quarterback's coach at Rhode Island in 2011. He's the quarterback's coach for Brown 2012 to 2013. 
Then he goes to UMass for a year. He is the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Then goes to Maine, where he finds his first offensive coordinator position. He then makes his move to the NFL, where he is the assistant wide receivers coach for the Los Angeles Rams in 2018. He stays with the Rams from 2018 all the way through 2020. Then goes to Kentucky to be the offensive coordinator and the quarterback's coach in 2021. And now has returned to the Rams in 2022. So all in all, he has so far since, I guess, his graduation. They'd say the player at Alabama Vipers 2009. First coaching experience in 2010. So you are looking at 11 solid years of working his way up the coaching ranks before he got his offensive coordinator position. And next up, he'll probably be a head coaching candidate going forward. Let's flip over to Mike McDaniel. Now, Mike McDaniel just got his first head coaching job as he got put in place to lead the Dolphins in 2022 and on. His coaching career, pretty similar. So, He starts with the Broncos in 2005. So we'll go through all the rest, but 2005 to 2022. So he's looking at about 17 years between starting coaching and getting his head coaching gig, right? So with Cohen, it was what? It was 11 years to get his first offensive coordinator bid. And now with... Uh, McDaniel, it is 17 years to get his head coaching gig. So McDaniel starts coaching intern with the Broncos in 2005. He's the offensive assistant with the Texans in 06 to 08. He is the running backs coach with the California Redwoods and the Mountain Lions 09 to 2010. He goes to the Redskins as an offensive assistant. He's there 2011-2012. He's with the Redskins for 2013 as a wide receivers coach. Browns, 2014 wide receivers coach. Falcons, 15 to 16 as an offensive assistant. 49ers, 27 to 22, or 2017 to 2020 as the run game coordinator. And then last year served as the offensive coordinator in 2021. So there you go with one head coach and his 17 year journey. And a newly crowned offensive coordinator who will ultimately be a head coach, you would think, and his 11-year journey. So now let's look back at some of the coaches that got passed up for jobs this year, right? And let's look at their pipeline feed. Jim Harborough, ex-NFL coach, current coach at the University of Michigan. Has NFL experience. Vikings talked to him. He ended up staying in Michigan. Right, So, Jim Caldwell. I can't even talk about Jim Caldwell because I am completely and utterly biased against this guy. I went to Wake Forest when he was the coach there. Uh, I was roommates with a football player from the team. And there's nothing that you can tell me that is going to convince me that this guy was a good football coach. I mean, I used to watch him on the Wake Forest sidelines standing there in a tie and uh, and a manila folder and no headset on. And how are you going to coach a fucking football game without a headset on? Now, I know that he caught on. Tony Dungy brought him along. He handed him the reins to the Indianapolis team. I know Caldwell had uh, you know a little bit of success there. He had a little bit of success in Detroit. Ultimately, nothing, uh, you know, 
real notable, just a little bit of success. And so I, I can't talk about Caldwell because I just think he's a joke. But anyway, he was also a candidate. He's a retread. I think he's 67 now. But also, NFL head coaching experience, how did he got it? He came up from the college ranks. Harborough, by the way, came up from the college ranks too before he went to the pros, went back to the back to college. So, then you have Todd Bowles. Todd Bowles was a head coach for the Jets. Didn't work out. Didn't work out, and they poked a lot of holes in his whole persona in coaching. Probably better as a coordinator, right? That is the, I would say, the consensus opinion about Todd Bowles. But he was a candidate this year, and he was a candidate because he had prior head coaching experience in the NFL after being on, uh, you know, other people's uh, coaching trees, on their coaching staffs, namely Brian, uh, what do you call it, Arians. So now let's go to some of the other candidates, and let's look at their history, because these are the ones that I want to talk about. So you have Byron Leftwich, who was a player like a hop, skip, and a jump ago. Right, He started coaching in 2016 with the Arizona Cardinals as a coaching intern. Then he was with the Cardinals 2016, 2017 to 18 as a quarterback's coach, 2018 as the interim offensive coordinator, and then he went to the Buccaneers and he's been the offensive coordinator since 2019. So currently, Byron Leftwich is in his sixth year of coaching. Remember, when we talked about Liam Cohen, he had spent 11 years before he was the offense coordinator. Mike McDaniel took him 17 years to get to the head coaching gig. Byron Leftwich has been coaching for six years. Six years. So by comparison, he just hasn't coached that long. Now, yes, he did play. But does playing the game give you the ability to coach or have the vast expanse coaching knowledge you would need in order to ultimately qualify for the head coaching position. Maybe, maybe not. I, you know, some people do it, some people don't. I'm just saying that historically speaking, six years versus 17 and versus 11, I, I'm probably going to side with the people with longer experience. Unless it's just some savant. But that's Byron Leftwich, right? I want to then go to Kellen Moore. Let's go to Kellen Moore. Do I, oh, no. Let's go. Instead of Kellen Moore. Uh, I'll pull up Kellen Moore, too, though. Um, go to D'Amico Ryans, right? Let's do uh, Kellen Moore because he was another hot commodity. And here is his history. Kellen Moore, your Wikipedia. Here we go. Uh, I had all these uh, picked up, and I didn't have Kellen Moore's. So here we go. Kellen Moore. So in his history. He was a player from 2012 to 2017. He has been the quarterback's coach in 2018 and offensive coordinator in 2019 to present. So while Leftwich has six years, Kellen Moore has four. So you have already seen the fall off that players trying to become coaches have in terms of years of coaching experience. And this is just the way of life for them because they're playing for however long it is. 
And then once they're done playing, they don't necessarily jump over to coaching. So one hot name that came around just recently, right? Kellen Moore had been talked about for two years, you know, Savannah, all that kind of stuff. I was saying, like, sometimes they're going to try to push people just because they think that, you know, they're the guy. Now, I I don't necessarily think Kellen Moore has it. I don't think Byron Leftwich has it yet. Those are just my opinions. But here's a name that you heard about all playoff long, and especially when the 49ers ended up beating the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay. And that was D'Amico Ryans, right? So D'Amico Ryans, everybody all hot and heavy to make him a head coach. Here is his coaching history. He, he was a player, and he was a player from 06 to 2015. Played nine years in the league. He was a coach in 2017 as the defensive quality control coach for the 49ers. Then he was the inside linebackers coach from 2018 to 2020, and now he is the defense coordinator. So all in all, he has five years of coaching experience. So you want to talk about three young candidates, two of which are minority candidates. All three of them are limited by the fact that they don't have the years of experience that some other people do. D'Amico Ryans was a player. Leftwich was a player. Kellen Moore was a player. They all lost time developing coaching skills because they were playing. Liam Cohen, Mike McDaniels, went right into coaching. They had all that extra time. How do you account for that? Well, you're going to need to have minority candidates that have the same kind of uh, time served in the coaching ranks. Now, you could go to Patrick Graham. Former defensive coordinator with the uh, with the New York Giants, who had just now left and went to Las Vegas to be the defensive coordinator out there with the Raiders. His history is much different. Why? Well, he went to college, went to Yale, was undrafted in two thousand and one, and turned around and became a assistant. Immediately. Wagner, 2002 to 2003, graduate assistant. That was his first gig. He was then a defensive line coach at Richmond in 2004. So 2002 to 2022, Patrick Graham has worked 20 years as a coach. Now, if you want to talk about people who have a case... Right, I would think that Patrick Graham would be one of the candidates that could say, hey, you know, I want to shake at this. Now, he has just got up to the defensive coordinator position. So it's not like this is, you know, a, a long time coming. But, I mean, in terms of being a coordinator, right? So because if you look at, uh, if you look at McDaniel... McDaniel ended up becoming uh, the run game coordinator in 2017, and he did that for two years, and he was the offensive coordinator for one year, and now he's the head coach. Now, he's also the offensive head coach. What's working against D'Amico Ryans and then ultimately Patrick Graham, they're defensive coaches. And I don't even think that we talked about that. But when you're looking at the pipeline, you're also going to be looking at trends. And right now, 
one of the biggest trends is the NFL is all about offense. That's what it's about. It's not about defense. It's about offense. So when you look at Patrick Graham, wow, man, guy did a pretty solid job with the Giants. He's been coaching for 20 years. I just don't know if we want a defensive-minded coach. I think we might want offense. So that's going to work against candidates as well. So any defensive candidate, regardless, is probably going to be working up against it anyway. But in terms of the pipeline, you can see the difference between the paths traveled between a Byron Leftwich and a D'Amico Rines and a Kellen Moore and a Patrick Graham or a Liam Cohen or a Mike McDaniel. And I I don't know how you fix that. Right? Just hiring coaches that are minority candidates just to hire them, I don't know if that serves the purpose, right? Because the teams want the best candidate. And if they ultimately hire a candidate that's not the best, regardless of color, and they fail, they probably won't get another gig. I mean, that happens a lot, too. You know, there's been coaches that have flamed out and not gotten other gigs. And so what you really want is to develop a pipeline that develops any kind of talent, regardless of race, color, and creed, but develops all the talent to get you the best possible coaching personnel out there and then let the owners and general managers decide who to take from that pipeline and I think that the problem with the Brian Flores lawsuits is it's taking one single example that isn't necessarily reflective of the true problem and trying to make it the real problem where Brian Flores is saying that They brought me in as a bullshit interview because I was black and they had to fill the Rooney rule. Stephen Ross tried to treat me the way, you know, he did because I was a young coach. They tried to make me do all this, you know, and I'm not getting a fair shake because I'm an African-American. Black, you know, whatever terminology that you'd like to use in terms of demographic, um, uh, uh, whatever, adjectives or quantifiers. Um, But that's the argument, and I don't think it necessarily rings true. Now, he's going to take this all the way. Like I said, doesn't want it arbitrated, wants it out in court. But I think what really should be done if the true intent, and I, I believe that's what it is, is to have all candidates be considered equally is that you have to fix the pipeline and you have to figure out a way to get all deserving candidates the same kind of experience. And that's tough because I think anybody with 10 years of experience probably warrants more of a shake than somebody with four. Unless, again, there's some kind of savant. Right? Couple that with the fact that they better be on the right side of the ball, you know, based on what the trends are now. And there's just, it's just very complex. And I think ultimately what it does a disservice is I just don't 
think that the owners and general managers are hiring in that manner. They're hiring on who they think is going to help them win. And you think about the Brian Flores thing. The other thing about it that I don't necessarily like is Flores bit his tongue about this for some time. You know, if you are a, you know, true man of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, shit, I can't think of the word right now because I'm, I'm running long here. But um, true man of your word, whatever the hell it is. Um, you know, you're righteous. Righteous, is that the word? Uh, anyway, I'm floundering here. Um, but Flores could have come out and brought this to light as soon as it happened. If Stephen Ross really did put him out there trying to talk some quarterback into coming with the Dolphins, or if he was paid or offered to be paid by Stephen Ross for tanking games, he could have brought that to light way long before this happened. Right? But he didn't. But he didn't. Now, why is that? Right? And so... Again, the lawsuit, while I think it means well, I just, I think it's all over the place, and it's a net negative for the league all over the place because I just think it's uh, not well thought out, and I think it's an angry individual who really liked his job and felt like he was treated poorly, which he very well might have been by Stephen Ross, and ultimately decided to just blow it up because he felt like he was going to do a greater good based on the things that happened to him. And I think what happened to him was just a series of poorly timed events. Namely, Bill Belichick not knowing how to use his stupid cell phone. Uh, John Mara talking to him, even though he had promised to let the general manager make the hiring coach, the hiring decision. And the way he was fired in Miami and you put all three of them together and you say look motherfucker I was treated like shit and I got treated this way because of who I am and unfortunately I just don't think that's the case here so other things that come out of this case number one uh, we know at the Giants Phil, Phil Shane's calling the shots right because he got who he wanted and that was Brian Dable um, and we know that tanking is going to be addressed. And this brings into Stephen Ross uh, and his whole situation in this thing. Because we have a couple of gambling items that are taking place right now. Number one, Calvin Ridley and his suspension. I'll say two things about the Calvin Ridley suspension. Um, it sucks. It sucks to be him. What he did, I do not think deserved by... Uh, the nature of what he did deserved a year. But unfortunately, gambling intra-sport is not allowed. Cannot be allowed and has to be punished to the utmost a degree. Because you can't risk the integrity of the game. Period. And you see this in other industries all over the place, right? So if you're a stock trader and you decide that you, you know, not a stock trader. Let's say you work in the financial industry and you say that, you know, you want to trade stocks. Well, FINRA is going to come in there and they're going to dictate how you can 
you know, buy and sell your stocks, how long you're going to have to hold them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because they don't want anybody in the industry trading with insider information, period. Same applies for sports and gambling, especially now that gambling has come on like, you know, wildfire and spread everywhere in the across the United States. Is that... You know what? You play NFL, you want to go gamble on basketball, have at it. But you play basketball, don't bet on basketball. You play football, don't bet on football. Calvin Ridley, sitting in the sidelines, decided to do this $1,500 bet or $1,500 worth of bets and did them on eight or 17 parlays. I mean, come on. Anybody who gambles knows that an eight, seven to eight game parlay, you don't have that kind of inside information. I mean, without knowing what the guts of the the bet is, but I guarantee you that Calvin Ridley was not making a well-thought-out bet. Not a chance. And so he threw together seven to eight teams and threw them in there in some kind of parlay, and one ultimately ended up being the Falcons. And did it so moronically that didn't give it to any of his friends, relatives, people he knew to make the bet for. Here's 1500 bucks. Open up an account for me and can you put this bet in? That's as easy as it had to be. Here's 14 deposit this in your account. Uh, fire up uh, you know the hard rock app and make this eight game bet on me for me. <laughs> bet on me yeah, if you're playing. Um, and so he didn't do that. He did it himself. And so ultimately it got caught because one of the oversight companies saw his name, was spotted, and reported it. And that's the way that it took place. And so a stupid way to lose an entire year of service and your salary. All for 1500 bucks. What, right? What do you call them? 11, 11 million? Something like that. So uh, just beyond stupid. I feel bad for him. The... The penalty didn't. Uh, the the crime didn't warrant the penalty, but unfortunately, because of the nature of gambling and the larger implications, you just can't do it. And so, and like I mentioned, Finra, Finra does the same thing. I mean, you could make one or two things, one or two trades, and it could cost you licenses, suspensions, the whole nine. So it is not unique to gambling nor football. If you're intra industry. Don't trade with insider information. Simple and plain. Now, as for Stephen Ross, this, I think, of all of the uh, legal items discussed, Brian Flores, Calvin Ridley, Stephen Ross, I think Stephen Ross is the real true uh, thing to be concerned of. Because Stephen Ross is the owner of a franchise. And if he did truly tell Flores to tank games, that screws with the integrity of the sport. And if that took place, that also screws with the gambling that took place on said games. And that ultimately could lead to lawsuits as people turn around and they say, I bet on this game legally, then that involves you know the federal government, regulation, all the rest of it. I mean, 
it could just go completely downhill. Because the NFL has, has to keep all of the gambling under control. And they have to be able to have the gambling taking place without the content of the game being adjusted by you know outside people to try to benefit somebody financially. You just can't have it. The game has to take place. The gambling take place on the game, but the two cannot be related. If Stephen Ross is having the team tank in order to better their draft position, then that screws that whole ideal. It's gone. Because now the coach is telling the game, he's telling the team to lose. The team is losing on purpose, which is screwing with everything that took place gambling-related around the game. The spread, the handle, the whole nine. And that's bad. On top of that, I you know, the... the other items that Flores brought to light, which was his, uh, you know, basically uh, interfering with, uh, uh, it's not interfering, but uh, speaking to another player that's under contract, big no-no, trying to coerce them to come to Miami. Uh, I, I mean, none of it looks good for Steven Ross. And here you go, uh, you know, a pretty historic franchise, still owners of the only undefeated season in the Miami Dolphins. And they have not been able to get it right ever since Dan Marino landed the Super Bowl in 82 or 84, whatever the hell it is. I mean, they have not got it right since. And they have tried everything. I mean, everything. And everything has been an outright... I mean, God. Jimmy Johnson. Bill Parcells. Uh, they brought in... Uh, minority ownership groups, right, to try to do it on the celebrity side. They, they've sold ownership. Heisenga to, uh, was it Heisenga to Ross? Maybe it was Heisenga to Ross. I mean, what haven't they tried? They've tried outside-the-box things. I mean, Cam Cameron. Cam Cameron, they hired him as coach one time. They tried anything, anything and everything, and none of it worked. And now they've got an owner who, you know, might have told his team to tank games on purpose so that they can get a, a quarterback. It It's just not a good situation all the way around. So going from, uh, you know, bottom to top, uh, you know, Calvin Ridley, beyond stupid, has to be done. Brian Flores, a notable lawsuit, and I think well meant in terms of what he is trying to achieve, which is to help minority candidates uh, get better looks by the NFL hiring ranks. I just think it's misconceived because I don't think that his case is really what he thinks it is. I don't think anything happened to him because he was black. I, I think what happened to him happened because of the situations at hand. I think namely a, an owner that obviously wanted a yes man and then another owner who had promised his general manager could make the choice he wanted but then spoke in this guy's ear like he was the one making the choice 
And so if you really wanted to address the issue at hand, which is trying to increase the number of minority candidates hired for head coaching positions, I think the real thing that should be analyzed should be the pipeline. And like we mentioned, that comes from years of service and years of coaching. And you got to figure out a way to get any candidate, minority or non-minority, who you want to see flourish the coaching experience they need. And unfortunately, if you are an ex-player, then that comes at a later time in your development because you're spending X amount of years in the league. So you start later than the quarterback or lineman or receiver or whoever it is that didn't make the NFL and turns around and becomes a graduate assistant immediately thereafter. That person just has so many years on you just because that's what life dealt them. And so that's the, uh, the the legal down that we wanted to talk about at the State of the Union. And I think that'll wrap it up. Now, I haven't, I mean, should wrap it up. Hell, I've been talking here for an hour and 46 minutes or whatever. But um, I didn't talk about any of the other signings or anything else that took place because obviously with the big opening of free agency and the league year on Monday, March 15th, We will get into that in future podcasts. So for now, that was the State of the Union. Uh, Thank you for listening. And then I will try to get to the microphone more and more um, as, you know, the big news comes through. I don't know. I'll be able to record all the time. But, um, you know, it's fun. And, uh, you know, especially when I don't go an hour and 46 minutes just uh, flap at the gums. So uh, all the best to everyone. Enjoy the next week of news. And I'm pulling for your team. Pulling for my team too, but I'm pulling for your team and hope you guys make all the best decisions leading up to the draft in April. All right, peace out. Talk to you soon.